This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratul Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about the conclusion to the Battle of Khandaq, also known as Ghaswatul Ahzab, which translates as the Battle of the Trench, or the battle against the Allied armies. So we talked about how this is towards the end, in the latter half of the fifth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina. And we talked about the conclusion to the battle, exactly how things finally concluded. And we've discussed it for a number of weeks. But essentially, very quickly, because today we're going to talk about the immediate aftermath of the battle. And this, this will involve discussing a topic and a subject, an event from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, which, is, which has been one of the most contentious issues from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It is something that was focused on um, and debated and discussed uh, in a great amount of detail. First and foremost, amongst Islamic his- Muslim historians. And I'll explain the reasons for that. Because they discuss a lot of the different details of that particular incident and of that particular battle. Secondly, this event has been discussed in a great amount of detail by non-Muslim academics as well, the Orientalists as we refer to them, European, um, uh, European academics if you will, starting in the 16th century, going on into the 17th, 18th century. And of course, it's remained somewhat documented and it comes up from time to time uh, whenever there is a particular attack or criticism against Islam. And with the recent rise of Islamophobia and of course the advent of the internet, this is something that's uh, been discussed to a great amount of, uh, this has been discussed to a great extent. Now, I'm not necessarily vouching for the authenticity or the validity of those discussions, but simply pointing out the fact that this is become somewhat of a buzz topic or a buzz word that is brought up a lot of times whenever Islam and Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ is talked about. And so let me create a very quick, brief, um, you know, synopsis to give you a little bit of an idea as to the background of exactly where we are and what we're talking about today. In the fifth year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina, five years since the establishment of the community, the Muslim community in Medina. Let's remember again who the community is comprised of and how the community was established. The community of Medina was comprised of basically people that we would call refugees and asylum seekers. These were people who were oppressed, who were tortured, who were persecuted in their home, in, in their home city, in their homelands. And eventually they were forced out. The ones who did not, were not killed, the ones who were not tortured to death, the ones, the ones who were not held captive, eventually were able to escape and flee and get out, you know, with barely their lives intact and were able to come and settle in the city of Medina to be able to pick up the pieces of what was left of their lives and be able to put together some semblance of a life of safety and dignity and and be able to practice their religion freely. 
That context is very important. Now, on top of that, what do you have? In the first four years, you have not one but multiple incidents where the same people that they were fleeing from, that they were running from, continue to raid the city of Medina. They continue to spy on the city of Medina. They continue to plot and plan against the city. They've already brought, on one occasion, a very large army of 3,000 right outside the, the gates of Medina at the, at the place of Uhud and attacked the Muslims. So they've made it very, very difficult for the Muslims to be able to live in peace and be able to continue on with their lives. Now what you have in this... And then there's a second issue I need to kind of remind you know everybody of. And that is, when the Prophet ﷺ first came to the city of Medina, he realized that this Muslim community was flourishing, was growing slowly but steadily. But at the same time, they, were, they had neighbors. They had other residents and tribes and communities that lived in the city of Medina who were not Muslim. These were the Jewish tribes of Medina. Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa' and Banu Quraidha. And the Prophet ﷺ was completely invested into realizing some type of coexistence and peace with them. That was the full intent of the Prophet ﷺ. That's why we talked about it in a lot of detail. I believe we dedicated an entire session to it that you can follow up on on the podcast. That the Prophet ﷺ sat with the leaders of these Jewish tribes and drafted the constitution of Medina. That there was a constitution, there was going to be an agreement that everyone was going to abide by and live by. And so all of that was in place, but one after another, what ended up happening was that these tribes, Banu Qaynuqa initially, they violated the terms of the constitution of Medina, they turned against the Muslims, and the Prophet ﷺ, due to some people vouching for them, and them basically asking for some type of leniency in this situation, the Prophet ﷺ absolved them, he in all essence of the word, basically forgave them. And the Prophet ﷺ told them that due to violating the constitution, the sanctity, and the safety of the community in Medina, that they would have to leave. And they were exiled from there. Now secondly, you had Banu Nadir afterwards. Banu Nadir violated the constitution of Medina, and then took it a step further by trying to cover up or respond to their violation of the constitution by attempting to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. And it was, a, it was very near execution. They basically went really, really far in terms of trying to carry out this assassination attempt until finally, through divine intervention, the Prophet ﷺ was informed by Jibreel ﷺ to leave there and to remove himself from there. And at once again, the Prophet ﷺ laid siege to their fortress, to their compound, and eventually when they surrendered, the Prophet ﷺ allowed them ample time to be able to gather their things up and leave from there. He practiced once again, restraint and patience and forgiveness. The mercy that we are so familiar with. That was again an instance where you had treason that was committed. And the Prophet ﷺ was merciful. And they left. But now where are we at right now? Where we are right now is that one of those, that same tribe that the Prophet ﷺ practiced mercy with and allowed to leave the city of Medina and even take their belongings with them. 
They basically hatched a plan. They went and recruited the people of Ghatfan. They went to Mecca and recruited the Quraysh, put together an army of 10,000 strong, which is in, which is a huge number at that times in, at that time in Arabia. And they marched with an army of 10,000 strong all the way up to the gates of Medina, right outside the city of Medina. The Muslims were in such a situation of dire straits. They were suffering from poverty, lack of resources, and it was a very cold, bitter winter. They were still trying to establish themselves and establish some type of economic even stability for themselves. They were a struggling, you know, fledgling community. And so they really did not have the strength and the capacity to go outside and meet them in open battle. So the Prophet ﷺ through consultation digs his trench around the city of Medina, and and basically they 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 put themselves they bunker down inside of this trench to hold off the enemy. And this continues on for a few weeks, until there is the third tribe now, Banu Quraidha, the third Jewish tribe, who were still allies of the Muslims. They were still a party to the constitution of the city of Medina. They basically are recruited by the same um, masterminds of this army, the allied army that has come to burn Medina to the ground. They are recruited by them. Initially, they somewhat um, are hesitant, but they eventually give in and they tear up the, their side of the agreement and they proclaim and announce the fact that they have turned against the Muslims and they are now going to join the fight against the Muslims. And this is like an enemy within. This is an enemy from the backside, from behind the exposed side of Medina. And this is very, very stressful and very, very difficult. So much so that the Prophet ﷺ didn't give up initially. We've talked about all of this, but I'm kind of rehashing it because we're going to talk about something very serious in just a moment. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't give up. He decides, no, this is worth salvaging. We can salvage this situation and this relationship. So the Prophet ﷺ dispatches some of the most respectable members of his community, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, Sa'ad bin Ubadah, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, along with Abdullah bin Nawaha, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and others, some of the most respectable leaders of the Medinan community, the Ansar, because they have a long-standing relationship with this particular tribe. And he dispatches them to go there, to reason with them, and to negotiate re-entry into the constitution of Medina, and to come back onto the side of the Muslims, to reconcile between the Muslims and Banu Quraidha. They not only reject the offer, but they are very, um, they are very uh, belligerent, they're very arrogant, and they completely dismiss any type of, you know, um, discussion about reconciliation with the Muslims. And so that's basically how they part. Not only that, but then there's another incident that we talked about where a couple of the individuals of Banu Quraidha actually come around Medina, sneak into Medina, and they go scouting to find where the women and children are being kept in Medina. They locate the compound, and they're scouting the compound to be able to go and massacre all the women and children until finally they are dispersed and they are sent off. 
It is ultimately through the genius and the plan of a sahabi, uh, Nu'aym radiallahu ta'ala anhu, whom the Prophet ﷺ basically asked to try to figure out some type of solution to this problem before things go really, really terribly. And he basically is able to incite some type of disagreement and discord between the people of Ghatfan, the people of Quraysh, and Banu Quraydha. We talked about this previously where he basically tells Banu Quraida, look, the second things go south, Ghatfan and Quraysh are gonna leave you here high and dry. And you've broken the pact and the treaty, you've, you've stabbed the Muslims in the back. So you're gonna be left to fend for yourself. So you should not agree to actually, you should not agree to go into the battlefield and to, act, to basically um, carry through with the final plan to burn Medina to the ground until they are willing to make a gesture of goodwill to you by taking, you know, a hundred of their most respectable individuals and leaving them with you in holding almost like hostage as a guarantee that they won't turn, that they won't leave. And on the other side, he goes to Quraysh and Ghatfan and he similarly says that, look, Banu Quraydha, they're not really in this completely, but you know, they're, they're kind of flaky, you gotta be careful, they, after all, they stabbed the Muslims in the back, didn't they? After having an agreement with them. So when you ask them to f seal the deal, to finish the Muslims off, they're going to ask you for some ridiculous demand. And be very weary of them. Because they're just gonna end up taking your leaders and executing them. And so he kind of incites this type of discord amongst them and they end up disagreeing. And at the same time, as Allah mentions in the Qur'an, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the winds, وَأَنزَلَ جُنُودًا لَمْ تَرَوْهَا The unseen army, وَرَسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِمُ That Allah says that we sent the wind upon them. And also we sent down an army that was unseen, that could not have been seen, like a miraculous end. And it completely, the strong wind blows through the camp that was set up by Quraysh and Ghatfan and Banu Nadir, and it obliterates the camp. And on the other side, so they basically all break apart, and they start panicking, and that complete army disperses and completely uh, dissipates. And on the other side, Banu Quraydha is basically left high and dry. And that's how the battle concluded, and we talked about that previously. So what I was alluding to in the beginning, what we're going to talk about today, the topic and the issue that is so contentious, and has been the topic of much debate and discussion, is the incident of Banu Quraydha. Now what exactly happens now? Imam Bukhari, rahimullah ta'ala, first and foremost he mentions that whenever the Prophet wasallam would you know, um, when he would be returning back from a battle or a campaign, the Prophet ﷺ would say takbir, Allahu Akbar, and then he would recite the following supplication, the invocation. He would say, La ilaha illallahu wahda, that there is absolutely no one worthy of worship except for Allah alone. La sharika lahu, there are no partners for him. Lahul mulku wa lahul hamdu, to Allah alone belongs all the dominion, the kingdom jurisdiction and ownership. وَلَهُ الْحَمْدُ And to Allah alone belongs the ultimate praise. وَهُوَ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fully capable over each and every single thing. أَعِبُونَ تَعِبُونَ عَابِدُونَ سَاجِدُونَ لِرَبِّنَا حَمِدُونَ That he would say that we are going back and we are repentant and we are you know humble and submissive and we are prostrating, bowing down in front of our Master and Lord and praising and glorifying Him. صَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَعْدَهُ 
that God fulfilled His promise. وَنَصَرَ abda He helped His slave. وَهَزَمَ الْأَحْزَابَ wahda And Allah alone is the one who defeated all the armies. So the Prophet ﷺ saying this supplication, they finally come back to their homes after the, leaving the trench. They come back to their homes. And again, Imam Bukhari ta'ala, he mentions this narration, and there's more detailed accounts uh, within some of the books of Sirah, like Ibn Ishaq and others. That لَمَّا رَجَعَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مِنَ الْخَنْدَقِ وَوَضَعَ السِّلَاحَ وَاغْتَسَلْ That the Prophet ﷺ came back from the trench, they had been out there for 20-something days, like three weeks. And he finally comes home after three weeks. And the Prophet ﷺ put, takes off his armor, he puts down his weapons, وَاخْتَسَلَ And he takes a bath, he clean, cleans himself. أَتَاهُ Jibril, Jibril alayhi salam comes to the Prophet ﷺ. And he says, قَدْ وَضَعْتَ السِّلَاحَ That O Messenger of God, that you have placed down you know, you have taken off your armor and laid down your weapons. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Naam, yes. So Jibreel alayhi salam, he says, Wallahi ma wada'nahu. I swear to God that we have not laid down our arms yet. In another narration, he says, Ma wada'atil malaikatu asilaha ba'du. The angels have not laid down their arms yet. Raja'atul ana illa min talab al qawmi. In Allah ya'muruka ya Muhammad bil masiri ila bani qurayda. Then he says, in another narration, he says that um, we have not laid down our arms yet, فَخْرُجْ إِلَيْهِمْ So you have to go again. Put your armor back on, pick up your arms once again, and you have to go out to them. The Prophet ﷺ says, فَإِلَىٰ أَيْنَا Where? Where would Allah have me go? And he says, هَاهُنَا He points in a direction, وَأَشَارَ إِلَىٰ بَنِي قُرَيْضَ And he pointed in the direction of Banu Qurayza. And in some other narrations, he explicitly says, that God commands you, O Muhammad wasallam, to go out to the people of Qurayza. And so the Prophet wasallam فَأَمَرَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فَأَذْنَ فِي النَّاسِ The Prophet wasallam calls some of the Sahaba, and he commands them to go and to announce amongst the people to pick up their arms once again, to prepare themselves, and to head out in the direction of Banu Qurayda. Um, some of the narrations also mention that when the Prophet ﷺ, he comes out from his home, um, he asks some of the Sahaba, that did you see somebody riding an animal? It says in the narration, Jibreel ﷺ was like riding a mule. He was riding a mule, and so he asks the Sahaba, some of the Sahaba who are sitting outside, he asked them, did you see somebody passing by here, um, riding an animal? And they said, yes, we saw him, and he was wearing such and such shawl, and this and that, and he looked like Dihya al-Kalbi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was a companion, a Sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ said, that Jibreel, that was Jibreel. And he came with the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we are to go out to Banu Qurayda. So the Prophet ﷺ has this announcement made that everyone should head out to Banu Qurayda. Now there's, an, there's, a, there's a little bit of a topic within this topic, and that is when the Prophet ﷺ you know, sends everyone out, um, and he says everyone head out to Banu Qurayda, he gives them a specific piece of instruction. The Prophet ﷺ tells them that, مَنْ كَانَ سَامِعًا مُطِيعًا فَلَا يُصَلِّيَنَّ الْعَصْرَ إِلَّا فِي بَنِي قُرَيْضَ The Prophet ﷺ says, whoever hears and obeys, they should not pray Asr, except in Banu Qurayza. 
And there are different uh, verbiages as well, there's different wording as well, but basically the gist of it is that the Prophet ﷺ say, Pray Asar in Banu Quraidha. Salul Asra fi Banu Quraidha. Pray Asar in Banu Quraidha. So the, many of the Sahaba, they, you know, they have to prepare, they have to get ready. And, so, and it was also the winter time. So they start preparing, they start getting ready, getting you know, their armor on, picking up their weapons, getting their animals and supplies ready. And then they start heading out and factoring in the fact that it was the winter time as well. So the time, the window of time was very, very short. And so they start, and of course when you move in groups, you move a lot more slowly than if you're just riding individually. So they're riding out in the direction of Banu Quraidha, and on the way to Banu Quraidha, the time for Asr begins to run out. The time for Asr begins to run out. The sun is about to set. Maghrib time is about to come in. So a discussion starts to happen um, amongst the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that what do we do? Asr time is going. إِنَّ صَلَاةَ كَانَتَ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ كِتَابًا مَوْقُوتًا Prayer times are fixed. And we know the Prophet ﷺ has emphasized it time and time again. As-salatu ala waqtiya. Praying at its time. Prayer time is going. So we need to stop and we need to pray Asr real quick. And then continue on on our journey. Some of the Sahaba, they however, they object and they say no. But the Prophet ﷺ said, لا يصليين أحد العصر إلا في بني قريضة. Nobody should pray Asr except for in Banu Qurayza. After arriving at Banu Quraidha. So this is a command from the Prophet ﷺ for a very unique and special situation. And so we should not pray Asr right now, but we should keep riding to Banu Quraidha. And even if we get there after the sun has set, Maghrib time has come in, we will then get there and then pray Asr and then pray our Maghrib. So this discussion occurs. And basically the Sahaba are split on the issue. Some of them stop and they pray Asr. And some of them continue on forward until they reach Banu Quraidha and then they pray their Asr there after of course Maghrib time has already come in, the sun has already set. When the Prophet ﷺ arrives there at Banu Quraidha, of course this whole incident and situation is brought to his attention. And the Prophet ﷺ is asked that we were confused. Some of us we prayed, some of us came all the way to Banu Quraidah, and then that's what we did. And the narration says, فَلَمْ يُعَنِّفْ وَاحِدًا مِنْهُمْ فَذُكِرَ ذَلِكَ لِلنَّبِيهِ صَلَّى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ فَلَمْ يُعَنِّفْ وَاحِدًا مِنْهُمْ This was mentioned for the Prophet ﷺ, this was mentioned, presented before him, and he did not disapprove of either party. But the Prophet ﷺ did not reprimand either group. And so this is a very profound incident that is the basis of a huge area of understanding of what we call, after its codification and formulation, what is called usulul fiqh the principles of Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic legal principles, and how we exactly arrive at legal conclusions, that this is a very key incident that many, many different key principles are derived from. The, one of the foremost of that being the element of what we have come to call ijtihad. And that is also from a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, ثُمَّ أَجْشَهِدُ بِرَأْيِي As Mu'adh bin Jabal responded to the Prophet ﷺ when he was sending him to Yemen, and he asked him, when you have to decide issues amongst the people there, how will you go about in doing that? And he said that I will look in the Qur'an, in the book of Allah. And he says, فَإِلَّمْ تَجِدْ فِي الْقُرْآنِ If you don't find the answer in the Qur'an, he said, then I will look in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. I will look in your sunnah, O Messenger of God. And he said, and if you are not to find the answer in the sunnah, he said, ثُمَّ أَجْشَهِدُ بِرَأْيِي 
Then I will apply my God-given intellect and ability and resources. Wala alu, and I will ex- uh, I will exert every effort and every avenue I can to really, in light of the Quran and Sunnah and the principles established from there, I will try to interpret the situation and come to the best conclusion possible. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know, kind of patted him on the chest, on the shoulder, and the Prophet ﷺ said, Alhamdulillah, that I praise God, Alladhi wafaqa rasoola rasoolillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the one who, you know, gave a sound understanding, guided the the messenger of the messenger of God, because Mu'adh was going as a representative of the Prophet ﷺ, I praise Allah, the one who has guided and given sound understanding to the representative of the messenger of God wasallam. So anyways, this is kind of where we extrapolate this area of ijtihad from, and that's why we have this understanding within our religion, when there is a particular issue that can be interpreted in multiple ways, validly, legitimately, then at that particular time, our religion and the construction of the legal structure and system within our religion is such, that we do not have the perspective of right and wrong. We don't have this type of divisive mentality, but we have a certain amount of flexibility and versatility built within within the religion. And this is a more detailed topic that kind of requires a little bit of study uh, in and of itself. But I just wanted to kind of take this opportunity because it's such a huge, you know, benefit and fa'ida, a benefit from this particular event in the life of the Prophet So I wanted to bring it up because a lot of times to a lot of us who might not be very well versed, you know, in fiqh and usulul fiqh, when we all of a sudden hear there's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars. And the scholars differed on this issue. Fihi ikhtilaf. And so on and so forth. A lot of times we can be either confused by it And some people are a lot of times even turned off by it What do you mean there's a difference of opinion? Why can't these people ever get along? Right? The fuqaha sound like my children Right? It always seems like they're arguing and fighting But that's not the case at all That's my lack of understanding And that's my own lack of understanding Of the complexity of how the legal system Within our religion works And when we study these The, the, the history of our deen And the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ And eventually the usul and fiqh and things like that We really are able to understand And appreciate the versatility, the flexibility And the depth and the, the functionality Of our deen and religion It's, it's a place so I wanted to mention that here specifically And I'll only go a step further to kind of demonstrate How was the fiqh of the sahaba And how deeply, you know, how, how intelligent And how enlightened and how sophisticated they were That some of the sahaba, Ibn Kathir rahimullah ta'ala specifically And many many other fuqaha discuss here But they specifically talk about it um, That the thought process of the sahaba because you know, if you think about it, when I say in the salat kitaba prayer time is fixed, then it seems obvious they should have stopped and prayed and then kept on going. So how are those sahaba like what was their thought process to say, no no no, we'll get there and we'll pray? Like where does that come from? Because they specifically understood that yes, the am, which the umum, the general rule, the general rule is you pray on time. But there are always specifics and specific incidents and unique circumstances. And this is a unique circumstance because of the pressing nature of the situation, right? The urgency of the situation. This is a unique situation in which the Prophet has issued a unique command. And that is even delay the prayer if you have to, but make sure you get to Banu Quraidah ASAP. Right? And in Usul al-Fiqh, 
That's why we have the understanding that if there is a conflict between one piece of evidence that's seen, that is general in nature and another evidence that is specific in nature, the specific is chosen over the general. Right? يُرَجَّحُ الْخَاصِ عَلَى الْعَامِ The specific is chosen over the general. So that was the principle through which they were operating. So sophisticated. On the flip side, those sahaba who said, no, no, no. Yes, the Prophet ﷺ said, make sure you get to Banu Quraidah before Asr. Before praying Asr. That they understood what the Prophet ﷺ meant was not necessarily the haqiqah but the majaz. He did not mean that literally. He meant that figuratively as a figure of speech. And what it meant was, get to Banu Quraidah ASAP. And make every attempt to try to get there before Asr time expires. And but that did not literally mean delay prayer. And that's why the Prophet didn't you know, reprimand them and did not disapprove of their process either. And this again demonstrates the fact, a very important principle, that not everything is literally interpreted. Right? There's the whole issue in Usul Fiqh of Haqiqah and Majaz, something that is literally interpreted and something that is figuratively interpreted. And the fact is that you can only go from the literal interpretation to a figurative understanding if you have external indicators telling you to do so. What is called a qarina or qara'in in fiqh terminology. And what were the external indicators here? The ayah of the Qur'an, prayer time is fixed. And the emphasis that the Prophet ﷺ had constantly placed on the timings of prayer. Such a sophisticated system. So anyways, I wanted to kind of highlight that and mention some of that. So now, moving forward, the Prophet ﷺ arrives there at Banu Quraidah. And one of the things that I have not talked about, but I will give it its own attention and mention it, and discuss it separately in a session by itself, inshallah, the next session, and that will be about Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. But suffice to say, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, the leader of the Ansar, he had been struck by a stray arrow from across the trench, and he was injured very badly, um, and he was bleeding. It had created a type of wound, and you know, um, some even mentioned that it had nicked like an artery of his. And so what it had done was, he was bleeding out, he was bleeding profusely. And they were trying to stop the bleeding as much as they could, but he was basically fading in and out of consciousness, and he was slowly, slowly slipping away. He was in a very bad situation. The Prophet had a tent placed, you know, in the masjid to look after him and to take care of him. So the Prophet goes with the Muslims and they arrive at Banu Quraidah. Banu Quraidah again, they basically retreat into their compound, into their forts, and they lock the doors and they fortify themselves. And the Muslims laid siege to Banu Quraidah for there are different numbers that are mentioned, but it's said roundly about for 25 days. They laid siege to Banu Quraidah for about 25 days. And there were a lot of different discussions and conversations that went on during that time. At one particular incident, there's a very interesting um, situation that they specifically asked that we would like to speak to Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba, who was an Ansari, a Sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ. And so they said, we want to speak to Abu Lubaba. And we want him to basically come and maybe negotiate some terms with us. So the Prophet ﷺ, he sent Abu Lubaba to go and talk to them. Abu Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala, when he goes there, they ask him that, should we, um, should we basically uh, surrender ourselves, come out from our compound, end the siege, 
and surrender ourselves to Muhammad wasallam for whatever it is that he decides to do with us. And Abu Lubaba says, yes, I think you should. And Abu Lubaba basically, and he himself talks about this, you know, mistakenly, what Abu Lubaba did was, Abu Lubaba kind of took his fingers and kind of motioned towards his throat. That basically saying that, yeah, you should surrender, and basically signaling that you'll probably be executed. And what he meant by that was, do y'all even understand what you've done? You've committed high treason here. You've committed high treason. And according to your own law, Jewish code and Jewish law, and in the Old Testament there is actually, literally verbatim, what exactly, what that was, that if basically there is this type of treachery that is committed by a people, then basically go and lay siege to them. If they, um, if they basically, you know, accept uh, your religion, then that's fine. But if they do not accept your religion, and then at that particular time, you know, uh, execute their warriors, their fighters, and you know, uh, distribute their wealth, and take captive the women and children. That this is in the Old Testament. And so he's saying that that's in your own code of law, that is what the constitution of Medina was based upon, the agreements of Islamic law, and Jewish code, and Jewish law, the Qur'an and the Torah, it was like a meeting of the two, as the constitution of Medina. And that's what you've done. So what do you think is going to happen with you? So while he, wasn't in, he was not incorrect in saying that, but basically taking that license, that decision was the Prophet ﷺ's to make. And he was speaking out of turn, out of line here. So by him basically saying that, at that particular time, the Prophet, uh, the, he, said, he gives this little signal, he makes that little gesture, they get really freaked out. And they say, okay, no, forget it, we're not surrendering. And he comes back and when he, when he leaves there, he realizes I've made a terrible mistake. And so he's so repentant and feels so bad, he tells some of the sahaba about what he did. And he says that I'm not even going to go and look at the, like I'm not even going to go sit in front of the Prophet, in front of the Prophet ﷺ. I am so ashamed of myself for speaking out of line, speaking out of turn, Right? That I don't even want to go sit in front of the Prophet. I'm too embarrassed to face him. And so he says that I'm not going to face the Prophet. Hatta uhditha lillahi tawbatan nasuha. Ya'lamuha Allahu min nafsi. Until I repent to God and God forgives me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that I am truly, you know, uh, remorseful for what I've done. And he goes back to Medina and he ties himself to one of the pillars of the masjid. And he restrains himself. He ties himself up there for 20 days. And even only when it's prayer time, then his wife comes, she opens him, he makes wudu, he prays, and then he goes and has himself tied up to the pillar of the masjid again, as a form of repentance. And so this basically continues on until finally the Prophet ﷺ, he even comments when the Prophet ﷺ is told, he said, لَقَدْ أَصَابَتُ بَعْدِ fitna That Abu Lubaba did end up making a mistake. وَلَوْ جَاءَنِي لَسَّغْفَرْتُ لَهُ But if he would have come to me, I would have forgiven him and I would have asked God to forgive him. He didn't have to go and do this. But the Prophet ﷺ said, God will, you know, basically forgive him. And then finally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed some ayat in the Qur'an that announced, 
you know, the forgiveness of Abu Lubaba and the Prophet ﷺ uh, summoned him that وَآخَرُونَ عَتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ خَلَتُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخَرَ سَيِّئًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Some scholars say this is pertaining to this, that there are some people who might have, who have mixed their good deeds with a little bit of bad. But God will forgive them. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is constantly forgiving and constantly merciful. And then the Prophet ﷺ summoned him, and the Prophet ﷺ, he told him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven you. So anyways, the siege of Banu Qurayza continues. And as the siege of Banu Qurayza continues, the will of Banu Qurayza is slowly withering away. Finally, so much so, that it's actually mentioned in some of the narrations, that one of the leaders of Banu Quraida, he, um, Ka'b ibn Asad, he says to um, his own people, Banu Quraida, he says, يَا مَعَشَرَ يَهُودِ قَدْ نَزَلَ بِكُمْ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ مَا تَرَوْمِ You are in the situation that you find yourselves in now. وَإِنِّي عَارِدٌ عَلَيْكُمْ خِلَالًا ثَلَاثًا And I'm going to present to you three options. فَخُذُوا بِمَا شِئْتُ مِنْهَا You're free to choose any of these three options. They said, what are they? He said, number one, نُتَابِعُوا هَذَا الرَّجُلْ وَنُصَدِّقُهُ We believe in the Prophet ﷺ and we follow him. We come out and we say, we accept, we believe. And of course the Prophet ﷺ had made it known to them all along that if they accept Islam, then there's no consequence against them. Regardless of what they had done. And he goes on to say, فَوَاللَّهِ لَقَدْ تَبَيَّنَ لَكُمْ أَنَّهُ لَنَبِيٌّ مُرْسَلٌ Because you know that he's actually the true prophet and messenger. وَأَنَّهُ لَلَّذِي تَجِدُونَهُ فِي كِتَابِكُمْ You know he's the one who's mentioned in your book. فَتَأْمَنُونَ بِهِ عَلَى دِمَائِكُمْ وَأَمْوَالِكُمْ وَأَبْنَائِكُمْ وَنِسَائِكُمْ And you can trust him. You can trust him. They said, لَا نُفَارِقُ حُكْمَ التَّوْرَاتِ أَبَدًا They said, no, 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 we're not going to abandon our own religion. وَلَا نَسَبْدِلْ بِهِ غَيْرَهُ We're not interested in any other religion. He said, okay. So if you refuse the first option, then your second option is, He said, then let's us, ourselves, massacre everybody here. Gather the warriors together, the fighters, and we with our own hands will murder everybody in Banu Qurayl. Like we'll kill our own families and our own people. Until the point where only the fighters, the soldiers are left, and then we'll go out to fight them and if we perish, so be it. If we win, we win. He says if we die, then at least, you know, we're not leaving behind anybody. And if we end up winning, don't worry, we can always get new families. Really bizarre, strange, right? Somewhat demented. So the people objected. They said that, What, you want us to kill these people? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? He says, okay. If that option is not uh, agreeable to you either, then he says that number three is that tonight is the night before Asabt, Laylat Asabt. The Sabbath. Tonight is the night of the Sabbath. And of course they had rules and regulations. They had their own code and law. They were not allowed to fight on the Sabbath. 
starting from the night before. And he says that Muhammad and his people, sallallahu alayhi wa they know that we don't fight on the Sabbath and the night before. So they're not going to be expecting us. So I suggest that we launch a surprise attack and attack basically them at night and try to ambush them. And the people again objected, they said, Anufsidu sabtana wa nuhditu fihi malam yuhdit fihi mankana qablana. They said that you want us to violate the Sabbath? To do to violate a tradition that we've upheld for generations? Is that what it's going to take? So they again refused to do that. So finally, eventually they end up surrendering. And they send the word out to the Prophet ﷺ that we are willing to surrender. And there are a couple of different narrations. One says that we're willing to surrender to the Prophet ﷺ. And the second narration basically says that we are willing to surrender specifically to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh who was from the tribe of Aus, who used to be the allies of Banu Quraidah. We know him, we've dealt with him for decades, we trust him, we'll come out if he will surrender on his terms. We'll surrender to him. If Muhammad will hand over his authority to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, we'll surrender to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Some say no, they surrendered to the Prophet ﷺ. And then the Prophet ﷺ basically, um, some of the people of Aus, they came and they said that when Banu Qaynuqa, one of the former Jewish tribes, when they were surrendering, you, they used to be the allies of the other Ansari tribe named Khazraj. You consulted with the people of Khazraj. And you allowed them to have a say in how you would deal with them. And that's why they said exile, and you exiled them. You did not execute them, you exiled them. Even in spite of the fact they had committed treason. So let us have a say about our former allies as well. Some of the people of the O said. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, no worries, no concerns. Who would you have decide amongst them? And they suggested Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. The Prophet ﷺ said, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is good? They said, yes, we agree to him. Banu Quraidah agreed to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh as well. The Prophet ﷺ sent the Sahaba, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, to go and bring Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. They bring him, and the Prophet ﷺ had cleared it, Ya ma'ashar al-aws, أَلَا تَرْضَوْنَ أَنْ يَحْكُمَ فِيهِمْ رَجُلٌ مِّنْكُمْ بَلَا قَالَ فَذَلِكَ إِلَىٰ سَعَدْ بِنْ مُعَادٍ The Prophet ﷺ said, one of you will decide, and that's Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, and they all said yes. So the Prophet ﷺ sent some sahaba to go and bring Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. They brought him, and they had to basically bring him on the back of an animal, like carrying him with bandages and everything tied around him. He was very frail, it was very difficult for him, but he basically mustered up every last bit of energy and courage that he had, and he came. And when he arrived, the Prophet he said, okay, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh will decide amongst you. And immediately, you know, some of the Banu Quraidah, even some of the people of the Aus, they started saying to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, Ya Aba Amr, ahsin fi mawalik. O Abu Amr, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh is kunya. They said, you know, look out for these people, they used to be our allies. فَإِنَّ Rasulullah The Messenger of God has put you in charge and has allowed you to decide so that you can deal with them. Uh, uh, you know, in, in a more compassionate manner. 
And they were really, and he was already under all this stress and difficulty. He was basically dying from a fatal wound and injury. And they were all like, you know, kind of talking at him and really, you know, really um, trying to pressure him. The Prophet ﷺ simply said, فَقَدَعَانَ لِسَعْدٍ أَلَّا تَأْخُذَهُ فِي اللَّهِ لَوْمَةُ That the time has come for Sa'ad bin Mu'adh that he should not fear the criticism of anyone who is willing to criticize. Meaning that Sa'ad should do what is right. The Prophet said that much. So Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he comes, the Prophet says, قُومُوا إِلَىٰ سَيِّدِكُمْ Go and stand up and bring and greet and bring your leader. And he's brought, and he sat down, and Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he asks everyone who is there. He says, عَلَيْكُمْ بِذَٰلِكَ عَهْدُ اللَّهِ وَمِيثَاقُهُ أَنَّ الْحُكْمَ فِيهِمْ لَمَا حَكَمْتُ قَالُوا نَعَمْ He asks the Banu Quraidha, Sa'ad bin Mu'addas, I give you an oath of God. Whatever I decide, you will accept it and abide by it and agree to it? They all say yes. The Prophet ﷺ was sitting on the other side with some of the Sahaba, and Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, not wanting to seem disrespectful towards the Prophet ﷺ, and say, while wow, the Prophet ﷺ is sitting in a group of people, say, will all of you also abide by what I decide? Because think about speaking to the Messenger of Allah ﷺ that way, or even in his direction. So he didn't want to do that, so he basically kind of looking, not looking there, he said, وَعَلَى مَنْ هَاهُنَا And as for the people on this side. That's all he said. Out of adab for the Prophet ﷺ. And again, everyone uh, responded that, Naam, yes. So Sa'ad bin Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu, at that time he issued the verdict. And he basically said that, فَإِنِّي أَحْكُمُ فِيهِمْ My decision is, أَنْ يُقْتَلَ الرِّجَالُ That the men be executed. وَتُقْسَمَ الْأَمْوَالُ And the wealth be distributed. وَتُسْبَ الذَّرَارِ وَالنِّسَاءِ And the women and children will be taken into custody. And when he decided this, and you can imagine, it's a very difficult moment. Right? One of the things is that we have to understand, and I'm going to talk about this just you know, a little bit more. But one of the things that I, I have to mention here is that this was not something that they relished in. I'm going to give like a very, you know, almost, you know, inappropriate example to demonstrate my point though. It's not like he gave this declaration, this de- decision, and then all of a sudden, you know, the sahaba are like high-fiving each other. No, that wasn't it. No, I mean, the, 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 when you read the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it talks about the sanctity of life. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa constantly emphasized the sanctity of life. But at the same time, there were some very obvious situations and circumstances. It, is an, it was an established principle, and it is an established principle that treason results in, you know, Execution. The penalty is death. And the Prophet ﷺ had ignored that once before. 
He had ignored that before. In the case of Banu Nadir, they violated the constitution of Medina, they broke, they, they conspired with the enemy, they tried to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. And he had ignored that fact before, that this is treason and it should result in death. And what happened was, that they left, he exiled them thinking, okay, they're gonna go elsewhere, they'll settle down there and they'll rebuild their lives and they'll live their own lives and let us live our own lives. Best case scenario. And what they did was they went elsewhere, but from there they built an army and attacked the city of Medina and nearly massacred all the women and children in Medina. That was the outcome. So there were some realities that could not be ignored here and are never ignored by any type of a system or nation or sovereign state. But at the same time, the difference was that there was no spectacle. There was no celebration. There was no inflammatory behavior. But it was very quiet, very somber. It's like the air went out of the room when he issued this decree and this judgment. And the Prophet ﷺ said to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh to let him know that he had not committed some you know, violation by saying what he had said, he said, لَقَدْ حَكَمْتَ فِيهِمْ بِحُكْمِ اللَّهِ مِنْ فَوْقِ سَبَعَةِ أَرْقِعَةٍ That he said that you have decided amongst them with the decree of God, in accordance with the decree of God from above the seven heavens. That this is what God has legislated. It is in the Torah. It is still in the Old Testament. So this is the decree of God. So you have not committed some violation. And at that particular time, basically steps were undertaken at that moment to arrange for the carrying out of the penalty and the punishment. And you know, many of the historians mentioned that at this particular time, some more of the rules and regulations were formalized and established about the distribution of wealth, that those who um, you know, were on foot in the battle received one portion, those who had an animal, a horse, were given three portions, you know, one portion for them and two portions for their animal, right, to take care of it and to also compensate them for whatever you know, the expenses and the wear and tear upon the animal was. That was done. The prisoners, the, 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 the captives, those who had to be taken into custody, the women and children, they were taken into custody. The Prophet wasallam, as we talked about in Badr before, the Prophet wasallam, again here emphasized, treat them very, very well. It's actually mentioned that all of them were gathered. Where were they kept? They weren't round up in some type of, you know, um, you know, like in pens, like wild animals. They weren't rounded up in pens, right? Like, like farm animals, right? Or some types of enclosements or camps, right? Um, but rather they were kept within homes. The Prophet ﷺ identified a few homes in Medina. And he said, this is where the women and children will stay, is in these homes. Host them in your homes. And then a bunch of other families of Muslims gathered together dates, filled up their water sacks with water, prepared food like bread and things like that. 
and they delivered it there for their food. Meals were being delivered to those homes where those women and children were being kept. The Prophet ﷺ said, we have to treat them properly. They are, they are our responsibility. And the Prophet ﷺ had arrangements made. There's a few different narrations that there was this one uh, empty plot of land. And some narrations mentioned that it was near the souq, kind of the markets of Medina. That basically the area was cleared out and the graves were dug. And that's where the, the men who were capable of fighting were basically executed and then they were buried there. And the Prophet ﷺ emphasized to the Sahaba that let's not drag, drag this out, but do this quickly. Let this be over. This is not something that anyone enjoys. Not only that, but there's a very fascinating, uh, there's some fascinating interesting narrations that one particular Sahabi, one particular man, as he's bringing one of the soldiers to be executed, and he's bringing him, that he kind of like, like pushes him to the ground and kind of drags him on the ground. And the Prophet ﷺ sees that and he says that, لِمَا صَنَعْتَ هَذَا بِهِ Why are you doing that? أَمَا كَانَ فِي السَّيْفِ كِفَايَةً Isn't it enough that the man is being executed? Why are you doing that to him? Why would you do that? And he said, Ya Rasulullah, جَابَذَنِي لِيَنْ يَهْرِبْ He was trying to run away. And the man, this, the, 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 the man Nabash, the man from Banu Quraidha, he says, كَذَبَ وَالتَّوْرَةً يَا أَبَ الْقَاسِمِ He swore by the Torah. He swore by the Torah, he says he lies. لَوْ خَلَّانِي مَا تَأَخَّرْتُ عَنْ مَوْتِنٍ قُتِلَ فِيهِ قَوْمِي حَتَّى أَكُونَ كَأَحْدِهِمْ I would never have abandoned my people. I'm with my people till the end. I wouldn't have run away. And the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded the Sahaba. He said, أَحْسِنُوا إِسَارَهُمْ That treat them properly. And the Prophet ﷺ said, وَقَيِّلُوهُمْ Provide them food and rest. وَسْقُوهُمْ Give them water. حَتَّى يُبْرَدُوا so that they can cool down. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, and then as the process continues, then carry out the punishment. And he said, لا تجعلوا لا تجمعوا عليكم حر الشمس وحر السلاح Don't torture them and leave them out sweltering in the sun. Provide them a shade, provide them water. Don't torture them and then have to also execute them. No, 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 that's not right. We do not go even a speck above what God has decreed. What the law dictates. And this is what the law dictates, so this is all that should be done. And so the Prophet ﷺ issued a very, you know, kind of serious reprimand about how to treat them. Not only that, but then there were some instances and cases where the Prophet ﷺ also pardoned and excused some people. One of the people of Banu Quraidah, he came, and he basically said that, I, I, did not, I, was, I did not comply with my people when they violated the constitution of Medina, I would never betray you, O Muhammad. And my people had ostracized me and outcast me, because I had not agreed to the violation of the constitution of Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba, release him. And the Prophet ﷺ said that, that his loyalty saved him. 
His loyalty saved him. Another narration mentions that one of the maternal uncles of the Prophet ﷺ, he came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he himself had adopted the Jewish uh, religion for some time. And then when Islam came to Medina, then he had become Muslim. He came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he said, O Messenger of God, one of the men of Banu Quraida, Rifa'a, me and him go way back. Allow him, allow me to you know, kind of vouch for him and intercede on behalf and spare his life because I have hope that he will become Muslim. And the Prophet ﷺ said, that's fine. And the Prophet ﷺ released that person, ordered that person released, and he did end up accepting Islam. Not only that, but another sahabi came to the Prophet ﷺ and he specifically said that, O Messenger of God, back before Islam, I, my life was in danger during you know, the wars between Aus and Khazraj. I was about to be killed. And one of the people of Banu Quraida, an older man amongst Banu Quraida, he you know, spared my life. He interceded on my behalf and he spared my life. I would like to pay back the favor. Please allow me to. And the Prophet ﷺ said, go. So he goes to him and he says to him, he says, do you remember me? He says, of course I remember you. I saved your life. And he said, well, I'm here to save your life now. So he says, okay. He says, but my family, I want to I wanna bring my family with me. He said, okay, let me go talk to the Prophet ﷺ. And he comes back to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, he won't come without his family. I want to pay back the favor, he saved my life. The Prophet ﷺ said, okay, he says, take his whole family with you. Then he comes and he says, okay, your family is free to go. And he says, oh, but all my money and my wealth and everything, how my, how's my family going to survive? He says, okay, I'll be right back. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, he won't leave without his money. His property. The Prophet ﷺ says he can keep his property. He comes back to him again and he says, He's releasing you, your family and your property. He says, what happened to... And he starts naming leaders of Banu Quraitha. What happened to him? What happened to him? What happened to him? What happened to him? He said, they're executed. They were the leaders of this entire situation. They're done. He says, you know what? If they're done, then I'm done too. Forget it. You did what you had to do, you paid back your debt, but I ain't going nowhere. But I mentioned these particular instances to demonstrate the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was willing to make concessions and forgive people and excuse people. And so finally it mentions that the carrying out of the executions, the punishment continued until the sun set and nighttime set in. And even at that time, you would assume that, okay, they're going to break for the day and continue the next day. And the Prophet ﷺ said, no, just continue on and finish this. This is, this is not pleasant. This is not anything anyone, anyone enjoys. Finish this now. And it continued on throughout the night until it was finally concluded. It specifically mentions about Huyay bin Akhtab, the man from Banu Nadir who was a mastermind behind all of this. He was in the fortress with um, Banu Quraida. And when he was finally brought out to be executed, he came out wearing the most luxurious clothes that he owned. It was like this red silk, you know, decorated, lavish garment, dress. And he came out wearing like this red silk cloak. And he had it tied up to him. 
because he didn't want anyone to remove it from him. And when he came out and the Prophet ﷺ saw him, he said to the Prophet ﷺ that, I see everything that's happened and everything that's going on, I still don't regret stabbing you in the back. I don't regret it. And he said, I know. God honors whom He wills, and He disgraces whom He wills. And He honored you and He disgraced me, but so be it. It is what it is. That level of arrogance. And when they finally took him to be executed, he took the cloak that he was wearing and he started ripping it into shreds because he said, I don't want anyone to be able to wear this after me. And he was taken care of at that time. Finally, when Ka'ab bin Asad, the leader of Banu Quraidah, the one who had expressed you know, some hesitation and even some remorse and regret, when he was brought, the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw him, he actually said to him, he said, Ka'ab bin Asad, he said, Oh Ka'ab, why didn't you listen to Ibn Kharash? Why didn't you listen to Ibn Kharash? Ibn Kharash was like an old Jewish rabbi. He was an old rabbi amongst them. One of the old scholars of the scripture, who still had some of the old teachings of the old scripture. And he had actually prophesied and predicted that the Prophet of the last times was coming, and some even mentioned that he had specifically talked about the Prophet ﷺ, saying that, and he is that Prophet. Believe in him, follow him, accept him. And he himself was a very old man, and he ended up dying before he had a chance to meet the Prophet ﷺ, before the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, and he had specifically told some of the people, including Ka'ab bin Asad, that if you end up getting to meet him, believe in him, and let him know that I believed in him, and that I sent my salams to him. And the Prophet ﷺ knew about this. And he said, why didn't you listen to Ibn Kharash? You should have listened to him. And then Ka'ab bin Asad was also executed at that time. Until finally, basically all of this was concluded. And it was, like I said, it was nothing that anyone relished in. But it was a very difficult moment and a very difficult decision that had to be made. Now, I'm going to conclude by talking about two things very quickly. Number one is, and these are the two topics that are basically, I wanted everyone to understand it from the tradition, from the Muslim perspective, what our books of history, what our books of seerah, books of hadith, tell us about this incident. Now the two topics of conversation are, number one is a little bit more technical and specific, It'll be fairly quick. And then the second one is the more philosophical conversation, which I've kind of touched on briefly, but I will uh, just kind of conclude the conversation. The first technical issue is, how many individuals were executed on that day? How many people were executed from Banu Quraidah? The fascinating thing about this particular topic, and I'm going to try to find, strike a balance between, um, you know, kind of a critical analytical, critical view of the actual narrative and narrations and the history that is related, while at the same time adhering to the obvious tradition that is in place. Right? So not just regurgitating simply what's written in any old book, like any, anywhere that's written just regurgitating that, having a critical view and, and analyzing and critiquing the authenticity of what is mentioned in certain books, but at the same time not taking a very apologetic or progressive attitude of just basically completely watering down what is actual history. 
Let's try to find this, strike a balance between the two. Number one is that there are some narrations like that are mentioned by Ibn Kathir, by Imam Ahmad, by Bayhaqi, and by many other scholars of hadith and history that say that there were about 400 individuals that were executed on that day. And these were the individuals, as the narration of Bukhari says, Bukhari and Muslim, says, مُقَاتِلَهُمْ That the ones who were capable of fighting, either those who fought or were capable of fighting, basically the soldiers amongst them. That's number one. There are some other narrations as well. Ibn Ishaq, one of the foremost scholars of Sirah in history, but he himself mentions it without... Uh, you know, absolutely vouching for the particular narration. He says the number is closer to five or six hundred. And then there are some other books of Sirah that mention larger numbers like 800, 900. But even Ibn Ishaq himself critiques them by saying that these, those are an exaggeration. And it seems Ibn Kathir himself, his own final conclusion is that the number 400 seems to be probably the most soundest of the sources and the narrations and the accounts that we have. Having said that, and I'm only going to you know, quote and mention here, classical you know, scholarly resources from an Islamic perspective. So again, that there's no type of modern day apologetics that are entering into it. Imam Malik, right? The Imam Malik. Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala, when it came to this particular incident, Abu Quraidah, he was very, very critical of even the narrations I mentioned 400. And Imam Malik ta'ala, was very skeptical of the sources from where they got the numbers 400 and 600 and 800, 900. And he said that a lot of these narrations and a lot of these numbers actually came from you know, even non-Muslims of that time. And so he pointed out a lot of discrepancies, a lot of inconsistencies within the chain of narration, within the methodology through which they were reported and preserved. And Imam Malik said the only authentic thing that we have is a narration of Bukhari and Muslim that says, مُقَاتِلَهُمْ which can be interpreted in two ways. And he says, which one is exactly meant? Allah knows best. I really cannot. Imam Malik felt, he said, I cannot conclusively comment on this. مُقَاتِل can mean either those who actually fought, or those who were capable of fighting. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bisawab, Allah knows best. But like I told you, there is, because at the same time, sirah is somewhat of its own discipline within the Islamic sciences, and there seems to be um, enough narrations within the books of sirah to at least give some credence to the number of 400, and ultimately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Okay? So I wanted to mention that particular issue first and foremost. Number two, the second is a more philosophical issue, obviously, as you can imagine. And that is, you know, whatever criticism there exists about, you know, and I'm going to quote it, not, you know, from myself, but basically quoting it from those who criticize, you know, saying barbaric, ruthless, you know, merciless, bloodthirsty, so on and so forth. Right? That those types of criticisms are made. That God forbid, وَالْعَيَاذُ billah, The Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba and the Muslims, they were, you know, barbaric and brutal and, you know, um, ruthless and bloodthirsty and so on and so forth. Right? That, you know, how do you justify executing all these people? And why couldn't they have been forgiven? And etc. etc. And the answer to that 
you know, is basically that, and I, and I don't mean this condescendingly, but at the same time, I do think that it's important for us to create context, number one. And that's why I started off by mentioning the extensive context. Understand the situation. Know the history. And every single time that this particular incident is criticized, and, and people are trying to criticize Islam and the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ by bringing up this incident, they will not even mention what happened five minutes before Banu Quraidah. They won't even mention the five minutes before the execution. Nor will they mention five minutes after the execution. They basically talk about just this many people being executed in a vacuum. No reason, no rhyme, no explanation, no nothing. Just... They paint a picture as if one day Muhammad wasallam and the Muslims, the Sahaba, may God be pleased with them, woke up one day and just said, you know what, why don't we just execute 400 people today? That sounds like a good idea. And that's how it's quoted, that's how it's mentioned. Completely lacking any type of historical context. Somebody doesn't want my particular interpretation or explanation, that's completely fine, I get that, I understand. You don't, you don't care what I think, that's fine, that's your prerogative, that's your right. But how can you ignore history? How can you ignore the actual events and incidents that occurred? So when you have historical context, this leads you to the obvious conclusion that these were people who committed treason. And this was the only justifiable punishment in that situation. In fact, when the only justifiable position previously was not taken, it came back to harm them. And it came back to bite the Muslims. And there is, even though for us... As Muslims, the only precedence and evidence worthwhile is the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba. That's all we're really interested in. But for anyone who is not only specifically you know, restricted to that precedent, go ahead and look through, his, through history. Look at any type of system of governance or politics. And tell me that that isn't exactly the legal, proper, sound course of action in that situation. So this is not a particular place where we need to be concerned or worried, where we need to be ashamed or embarrassed. But at the same time, we don't need to be unruly and overzealous, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum. As you see, violent, militant, extremists, they go to the opposite extreme. We need to be sound, we need to be intelligent, we need to be very um, deliberate and thoughtful and reflective and understand the circumstances and understand the principles and the usul by means of which this conclusion was arrived at. And understand it in the context of a state and a nation and two separate nations who are supposed to be allied, who share a border. And then one of them violated the alliance and committed treason. That that's what need to be that that what that is what needs to be understood. And that is how we need to move forward with it and understand it and process it. And at the same time from a Muslim perspective, this was a very difficult decision that had to be made in a very difficult situation. But we at the same time will not ignore the rest of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and all the opportunities and the moments and the situation, excuse me, 
in which he practiced mercy and patience and forgiveness and restraint. And we're going to actually understand it in the context of all of that. And so that is basically what I wanted to also explain, that a lot of times we become just so anxious and hesitant and nervous, where we're almost sitting there praying, that I hope nobody says, Banu Quraidah. I hope nobody brings it up. But when it is brought up, we need to understand that that is an opportunity to educate somebody on the history of the deen and the religion. And in my own very, very limited brief experience, as you know, a teacher, having the opportunity to teach people, specifically about the life of the Prophet ﷺ, whenever somebody has come to me and said, Banu Quraidah, I can't grasp it, I can't handle it, I can't make sense of it. It's not, it's not working for me. And when I've had the opportunity, they've given me the opportunity to be able to educate them on the history and the context, and the circumstances and everything that led up to it. I've never till now ever seen a situation, not a singular one, where they were not completely satisfied and content with it at the end of the day. And that is not a testament to my ability to be able to teach or explain, but that's a testament to the balance, and to the fairness, and the justice, and the consistency of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So that was the incident of Banu Quraidah. We'll go ahead and conclude with that. And inshallah in the coming session, we'll talk about Sa'ad bin Mu'adh and his passing shortly thereafter. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all confidence within our deen. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to understand and learn the life of the Prophet And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to live based off of the beautiful principles learned from the life of the Prophet Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasakhfiruka wa natubu ilayk.